I'm really happy to have both of you here today. I've seen all the wonderful photos that you've both been doing uh, at your time in Laos. And I just wanted to get to know a bit about both you, Amy Hurt, and you, Paul Bunker. So Amy, you're with Working Dogs for Conservation, and Paul, you're with Kyron Canine. Can you both tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do? So Amy, um, you can go first. Sure. Um, so I'm one of four co-founders of Working Dogs for Conservation. So we're a conservation detection dog organization based in the U.S. and we work all over the world. Uh, we started working together in the mid-90s when it became possible to get DNA out of SCAT. Um, and then we decided to become an organization in 2000 and have, have, have been here as the field of conservation dogs grows around the world ever since. Amazing. And how about you, Paul? I started my dog career, dog training, actually with my father before I decided to join the military as a dog trainer. I served 22 years in the Royal Army Veterinary Corps of the British Army. And when I retired, they asked me to move over to the US and set up an off-leash detection program for the Department of Defense. Um, that was primarily to support Iraq and Afghanistan. So I did that for seven years, I think it was. I took a, um, Then I went up to North Carolina, joined a um, program up there, training combat tracking with canines. Um, was program manager for handler training for the Marine Corps and then research and development in canine detection for Office of Naval Research. Became the director of the school up there and after a year decided to branch out, start my own company, which was nearly six years ago. So now I concentrate as a consultant and trainer in detection and happy to have partnered with Working Dogs Conservation on this project. Amazing, thank you. So um, the first question I want to ask you both is, what are some of the most challenging places that you've worked um, in aside from Laos? So we can you go with... first, Amy. Yeah. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, because with your military background, you're you're probably going to best me in in whatever my answers are here. Um, I've worked in Cameroon, uh, mm -hmm. looking for uh, cross river gorilla dung, um, and that was very challenging and shares a lot of commonalities with with Lao in terms of remoteness um, and you know the hot humid environment with, with dense forest. Um, and they're similar thing, you know, you're, it's, it's remote. And if a dog or a person gets injured, it's going to be a while until you can get help. Um, and you know, there's some wildlife there to be concerned about the gorillas for one and green and black mamba snakes. Um, so that, that probably tops the list. Yeah. That sounds quite interesting. <laughs> and then how about you, Paul? Yeah, I mean, in the military, obviously, we deploy to less friendly places. Um, mm -hmm. And it, I was always part of the canine community. So, you know, we, we would go out to these countries and support military missions. Um, but funny enough, I think the most challenging experience I've had was Canada, of all places. And that was in the recent past, we were up there for four months working six days a week and you had to deploy everywhere on a boat 
um, basically you are your own life support on the canine element. I mean, you were hours from a veterinarian. There was bear and moose and beaver and deer uh, and all uh, the hazards that we had to encounter because we were on foot along uh, the edge of a river and actually wading through the river for quite a lot of that time. So it was more that you were remote with no real professional support system, if you like, you was it. So if anything happened, you had to deal with it on the ground and then extract yourselves by calling it. We had satellite phones because there was no mobile service, calling in emergency boats to take us back to the nearest town and those sort of things. So I think, you know, that was the most challenging overall. And it covered the whole period of winter through summer, um, mm -hmm. which was extreme. And in the winter, it was minus 10 degrees um so it was quite severe weather you know as well on top of everything else mm -hmm. so like very cold and then very hot yeah mosquitoes in the summer and super hot and dehydration was obviously always concern and um overheating and then the winter wind chill um and dealing with that with the dogs you know it was the extremes from one to the other mm -hmm. okay yeah they both sound like very challenging places um definitely would want some help if I was in that situation <laughs> um so um can you both tell me what's one thing that hardly anyone knows in your working life knows about you um so this could be whether you know it's something that you do when you're out there that only you do um or anything that you can think of I think this is a little tricky because um pretty much all I do in life is is work right and so I work a lot and closely with all my coworkers, and um I've known most of them for years so I I'm pretty much an open book at this point I can't think that there's there's much that that you know the my regular coworkers don't don't know about me um and then you know the nature of like this project is you know, Paul and I met in person for the first time in the airport in Bangkok as our flights arrived. But but then you're together all the time, and uh, you know this and that. You just get to to talking, and and even if it's for these these short um, stints in the field, it's all you're living together and working together. And so it seems pretty. You just get to chatting and knowing all sorts of things about each other. You just get get start doing things and learning from each other yeah um, it's like a big sleepaway camp you know it's just <laughs> it's very intense time together and yeah and so yeah you get get really um comfortable and you make a lot of really long-lasting relationships yeah which is really nice how about you Paul is there anything that maybe hardly anyone in your working life knows about you um, I don't think professionally because, you know, nowadays social media and we market ourselves or at least um, allow people a lot of snapshots into what we're up to all the time. Um, and, you know, I only have one training partner that works with me. Um, so same as Amy was saying, you know, you work together all day, every day. You get to know a lot about each other professionally um about goals and what you're doing etc so yeah it's kind of difficult to think of something people don't know about me in my working life uh, one thing and this is us based that i don't think anyone within the canine community necessarily knows about me is that i'm a direct descendant of um, the person that owned bunker hill which was the first 
major battle in the Republican War, uh, Revolutionary War, um, Breed Hill and Bunker Hill. And I'm a direct descendant of one of those bunkers. And actually, I went up to Boston last year and visited it, and they bulldozed the hill and used the, the earth to make an, um, to fill in part of the harbor to expand it. So unfortunately, there's nothing left of it. But that's just something people wouldn't know about me. Yeah, well, that is definitely a very interesting fact for sure. It's a shame they uh they bulldozed it down. Yeah, bunker um, flats. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now I want to dive a little bit deeper into getting to know a bit about scent detection dogs because I know both of you work with canines, and that's kind of more of your speciality. So, um. What are some of the extraordinary things about scent detection dogs? Yeah, so I think one thing I'm always impressed by is is how they learn and what they learn and um, how how much more kind of comprehensively they're able to put together the the scent picture and and the search than um, than maybe I even realized we were um, preparing them for in training. Um, and this is both a great thing and also um, something that as trainers, we have to be careful of because they they are always building the this the the context and the scent picture and their understanding of of what the job is. And so if if we aren't attentive to everything that we're presenting them, they could take the wrong, picture away. Um, but one of the neat little field anecdotes is uh, a previous dog I was working Wicket. She's actually, that's her painting back there. Um, we were working in Hawaii and looking for an, an invasive snail. And we worked two, a year apart. Um, and the second year she ran up to this this one boulder and started very carefully sniffing around the base of it and i looked at my notes from last year and then you know kind of looked around the area and realized that <clears throat> there were not that many snails to find in that area but that <clears throat> excuse me that was a place that she found a snail the previous year and mm -hmm. so she just recognized the the land features or perhaps there's a particular smell in that area and there wasn't a snail there the second year but the way that she approached the boulder and searched she was like oh i remember there should be a snail here and so you know that was just a good demonstration of of how she had kind of encapsulated that that training um in her mind and and you know really having that great place memory a year later was just pretty impressive mm -hmm. yeah that is very impressive. Um, is there a way where you can tell if they um, remembered the wrong smell or the wrong idea of what um, you want them to be able to find? Can you tell quite easily or is it only when you start searching you realize actually they're not trying to, they're not finding what you want? Um, well, you can see the, re you can recognize difference in search behavior like you, the, uh, their search behavior looks different when they're searching for a train target versus say maybe there's 
birds in the area that would be interesting to a dog or there's other dog scent and and they're just kind of having general dog interest you can recognize that behavior um but otherwise it, it might be when they find a target if it's not the right target at that point you would realize hang on somewhere along the way we trained them um to also include this other similar target or that that sort of thing mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, Paul, um, can you also answer what are some extraordinary things about scent detection dogs? I've been training dogs for 40 years now, actually, professionally. And, um, you know, in those 40 years, training or coaching or how we approach uh, guiding dogs to what we need them to do has changed considerably. You know, when I started, it was very much ask, make uh, the dog do something good boy, pat it on the head, you know, and it was very um, kind of compulsion based without compulsion. We didn't use check chains or tools to train our dogs. But at the same time, you know, we didn't have this huge understanding that exists today about animal learning and dog training. And over those 40 years, I've seen a huge shift in the way not only do we chain, train dogs, but our understanding of the capability. And I think Conservation in particular has pushed the boundaries of understanding of dog training because you know we've trained explosive detection and narcotics drugs detection for decades. And conservation work really has been in the last two decades, maybe started to push the boundaries because it's not standardized work. You know, the, the broad spectrum of the odors you're looking for, whether it's a reptile, which actually is trying to evade being found. Um, so you have something that's no longer passive, something that's sat there to you found, like marijuana. You've now got something that's actively trying to get away from the dog and, and disguise itself from being found. Or invasive plants in a field of plants. Or, you know, there's so many examples now of where we have to really push the boundaries of our understanding of the capability of dogs. With that as well, I do a lot of supportive research with um, universities. And we're really starting to tap into that understanding of just how incredible the dogs are and how we can um, use that capability and hone it to exactly what we want. And all the time I get amazed, even after 40 years, of just what we can ask the dogs to do and how they can do it. Now, recently, I completed a project where the dogs had to be able to tell the difference between the same target based on age and that was the only difference just age and they did it 100 percent. there was no question that they had the capability and we've deployed these dogs into the field it wasn't just lab based they're able to go out there and actually search an area and uh, dismiss the same targets because they're old and only respond on fresh examples 100 percent of the time no question. And it's just things like that, that I think one conservation is giving us an opportunity to actually push those boundaries because we need it. And two, it gives us an opportunity to actually challenge the dogs and see at what point can't they keep up with us. And at the minute, they're way ahead of us in what they're capable to do. I think it's our imagination as humans that's holding us back or maybe just the lack of confidence in just how good these dogs are. So I think that's the thing, you know, the extraordinary thing with the scent dogs is 
we don't know how good they are at this point, but we're learning a lot. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really fascinating. And hopefully we can do so much more in the future as well with them. What do you think is the hardest part of the program uh, to find Saula um, with these dogs? I think we're both going to have the same answer, I'm sure. It's mm -hmm. the fact that there is no Saula scat available for us to train the dogs on, you know, and that's a huge challenge because typically when you train a scent odor detection dog, you use the scent of the target you want. You associate it with a uh, positive reinforcement, a toy, a treat, combination, whatever it is, but something pleasant. You teach the dog a behavior of what it's to do when it smells that item. And that's how we train the dogs. In this case, there is no Saula scat. So we don't have that whole step, which is a very important critical step in training a dog to locate Saula scat. We don't have any scout Saula scat. So to approach that, what we've done is we've, or we are teaching the dogs to what's termed generalize. This is where we give them examples of similar type scats that are held in captivity. Um, and there's been lots of organizations, zoos and foundations within the United States that have shipped different um, scat tours. And we've been training the dogs on these different examples of scat. The idea is that when they go into the Lao forest, that they will respond, that is, give us an alert on any example of scat which is located in the forest. And that could be pig, deer, um, anything that they come across, but hopefully also Saula, because they've learned that any scat within this environment could lead to me getting to play with my ball or get a piece of cheese or whatever the reward is. Mm -hmm. So that is, for me, you know, that is definitely the major challenge. There is a secondary challenge to that, which is snares, which the locals deploy in the forest. Um, they are significant snares because they're trying to catch large mammals. We were fortunate that we were able to confiscate some from the forest area during our reconnaissance mission that Amy and I went on to late last year. And I brought them back with me and we've been training the dogs to actually locate the snares but when they locate the smell of a snare, they stay back two or three feet from it. But it allows us then to actually find these snares and confiscate them in the field or the handlers will without the dogs being at risk from the snare. So that was kind of a secondary thing. But the primarily because we're looking for Saula scat, it's the fact there's no Saula scat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that's quite hard to kind of train what the odor would be <laughs> that they're trying to find. Yeah um definitely and um, what about you amy what do you think is the hardest part of this program or would it be the same in that there's no yeah. scat? well i totally agree with with paul um in addition it's the um kind of the intensity and remoteness ruggedness of the environment um combined with the um you know the the missing component of the cell scat to to um, actually train with. In addition, we have um, handlers who are very keen learners, but absolutely brand new to this type of relationship with a dog. And so all of that, like this is a, a complicated, um, demanding endeavor. And it would be for um, any of us with decades of training and handling experience. Um, and we're bringing on, you know, a team of new handlers. So 
having to learn those skills in a very complex en environment with um, like a tricky scent picture. It's a big, it's, it's ambitious. And, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's why we've put together with Salah Foundation, a, a, a dog team leader who's come over to the States and, and she's done some training here. Um, we're going to have remote support for the teams. Um, uh, you know, all these check-ins, we'll go back to the field and visit. So it's just layer upon layer of support and continued communication to, to really help these new handlers work in, on a really complex, um, project. Yeah, definitely. And definitely with the, such a rugged terrain, it's, it'll be a lot harder to kind of find where to go and, um, work with the dogs as well. Um, what did you both think when you approached to work for the Sala program? Did you have you heard of Sala before you were approached? It was probably a decade ago that we were first approached by I don't know who it was because it's it's my coworker Alice's job. She fields these initial inquiries. So I, I can't remember what organization came to her and said, Can we find Sal Law? And at that time, getting back to Paul's point of this field of conservation, we're, we're learning how to, to do this and how to work with the dogs all the time. And 10 years ago, when we were approached, it's like, there's no Salah, you know, we can't have scat. We can't, um, you know, they have the, the scent glands around their eyes, but, you know, we thought that might be an interesting target to work with, but again, no, no animals. So we can't access that that scent either um and so at that time we, we thought you know it's like looking for bigfoot we have no samples we, we can't we can't train the dogs to find it so sorry no we can't help and i think just the the diversity of targets we've worked on since um the additional um understanding of how dogs olfaction worked and how they learn that other entities have worked on um you know the, the fresh blood and ideas like paul coming into the field i think all of that meant this time when we started talking with salah foundation it was like yeah this is a big ask we're gonna have to creatively go about it but um but there's actually sort of a plan of action and a path forward that we could see yeah, definitely. Um, it is definitely a big task. And how about you, Paul? What um, what did you first think when you heard about Sala and the program? Um, I'm thinking it must have been 18 months, two years ago that Mark from Working Dogs Conservation called me, um, maybe 18 months ago or a little less, and um, said, hey, we've got this project, you know, just to kind of sound you out, would you be interested? And you know, the initial discussion was very short and brief. It would be in Lao. There's no target to train the dogs on. Um, you'll be training local handlers. Do you want to go? And, you know, at that time, I was. it was one of the list of these really interesting, challenging projects. But, you know, a quick phone call and then you don't hear for quite a few months and think, yeah, that's that's gone away. But then, you know, things started to escalate and we need a copy of your passport and here's some tentative dates and I started to realize that actually this is real you know it's going ahead and and um immediately I was excited because 
you know, it's a huge challenge for me as a dog trainer, which I really enjoy, but also for the dogs, you know, and like I said, we're pushing the boundaries all the time. And here's another example of something where we really need to push the boundaries of our understanding of dog training and training dogs, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I was really excited when I heard about it. I'd never heard of a sowler. Um, of course, I had to Google it, you know, when things start to get a bit more serious. I had to Google where Lao was, um, you know, and try and get some background information. But at the same time, yeah, hugely excited at the challenge that this project is offering. Yeah, it definitely is such a unique opportunity um, and one that would be really rewarding once um, we find Zowler. Um, so I wanted to know some of your experiences in Laos because both of you last year went to Laos uh, with the candidates in the forest. Um, so I wanted to know what surprised you the most about working in Laos, especially if, for example, you Paul, you had to Google it, you didn't know where it was on the earth. I mean, there were several surprises. I'd never been to any Asian country prior. Um, so all my understanding of Asia was the internet and films, et cetera. Um, I landed in Bangkok and I spent a night there, then flew to Laos. Um, and then I can't remember, Amy, we spent three, four weeks in Laos, I think it was, um, doing various tasks to support the mission, you know, gleaning information and going into the forest for several days and seeing the actual train and what we'd be doing. I think for me, the biggest surprise, and, you know, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but it's just how friendly the people are and how helpful they are. And, you know, everyone just wants to help each other and look out for each other um and they were just super super friendly happy you know um easy to get along with and caring and ensuring you're always all right and looked after and you know that was such a um breath of fresh air for me to go into that sort of culture and and just have that total friendliness and um happy happy culture that i found anyway Wonderful. How about you, Amy? What surprised you the most about working in Laos? I think um, that to to find how much tourism was there, um, I, it was just unexpected. Um, I've been to other countries that just sort of aren't on the map aren't, uh, of of tourism and. And granted, um, so it was really neat to be mostly like the the a lot of European tourists in Vientiane and um, at that time not yet Chinese tourists. We 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 heard the pandemic still having things closed down. Uh, someone said, you know, this is a really interesting time because the Chinese tourists aren't here and normally they would be. Um, but so it was it was just kind of neat to to think about how this is on somebody else's radar for for tourism um but also the food which i love and i didn't know how kind of similar i, I was more familiar with thai food and and vietnamese food and so i expected some similarity um but i didn't know that it would strike me in this like happy spot the the way that that thai and vietnamese food does as well and so that's really welcome i think sticky rice is one of my favorite things uh 
favorite foods ever. And so to get to have that all the time and um, when we were in the fields, you know, to come back to a big, a big um, serving of sticky rice every day was, was great and really welcome because it can be really helpful to have like familiar comforting food when you're in a new place and when we're in the forest, you know, things are rugged and you just you need need to be satisfied with what you're eating and you know if if you're in a place where the food doesn't work for you it can be add an extra challenge so that was a really nice surprise yeah food is definitely very important and it's good to have some comfort food and um, so it's really good to hear that it was really yummy and you loved it um so some more experiences of Lao. Um, if you could change three items of your fill kit, what would it be? Well, I'll follow on because I struggled uh, eating out there. One, because I can't eat any spice. Um, being English, you know, we're not used to those sort of foods, but actually it makes me sick um, in different ways. You know, I can get a very upset stomach. My face will swell and different. So I have to be very careful and you know, a lot of the Lao food did have spice in it. Um, so that limited my diet capability. So I think one of the things I'm going to take is, um, and I hiked the Appalachian Trail a few years ago. And um, I had similar sort of issues even in the US. And I ended up, it, it's a powder that you mix with water. And it gives you all the vitamins and nutriment, nutrients that you need, plus calories. So I'm going to take that as part of my kit so that I have uh, some boost in my nutritional requirements while we're living in the forest, particularly because I think during the next phase, we're going to spend a lot more time out there with the dogs actually training and doing the work. I also wore boots and I at the time of going there, I didn't realize that to get into the forest, you had to wade up three kilometers of stream and then every day you're wading up and down streams because that's part of your easier access points so I was actually in uh, boots proper big boots and they are not suitable for that sort of train so I'm going to change them out and have more like a sandal type boot that is more suitable for the the water crossing and and the use in the, the entry and ex exit points of wading through the streams and the final one is leeches there was a lot, a lot of leeches. And I, so I was prepared for mosquitoes and I had body nets and everything. And there was no mosquitoes. It was leeches that were the worst part. And, you know, at one point, I think the first night in my hammock, I found five leeches on me and one was stuck on my face and then on my feet. And uh, so I'm going to leech proof a lot more. I'm going to uh, get the leech-proof socks for when you're wading through the streams, try and prevent some of that. But yeah, some sort of leech-proof equipment instead of mosquitoes. Yeah, that definitely sounds essential, um, especially with all the leeches. Um, I've seen that, I think Lee Guthridge had to buy these really fluorescent yellow socks just so that he can try and get them off his legs. Um, how about you, Amy? Um, so I'm going to bring my own power bank this time. Luckily, Paul all had a, a, a high capacity one so he could recharge his phone and, and mine. Um, but I'll be a self-sufficient 
this time because I found myself um, wanting to take a lot of photos when when we were, um, you know, deployed for the day uh, hiking around. But then back at camp too, I was finding insects and following that. I, I was just like taking photos and videos all the time, and so really kind of wore wore down my my phone. Um, I'll second the 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 leeches. Um, I think my plan for that is that I didn't I didn't have any Benadryl on hand, and the leech bites make me very itchy. So that's going to be my plan is to to help have um, both some some ointment and some pills I can take to to try to minimize how much I react to the leeches. Um, and then I think I would like a uh, maybe like a hammocky sort of chair, something with a back that I can rest on in, in the day at camp. The The guys made these awesome chairs out of like bamboo and stacks of rock. Um, and they were really comfortable as both the, like a stool and also worked great as a table. But I just found um, after hiking around for the day, I wanted to be able to lounge a little bit. And then I would think, well, maybe I'll just go in my hammock. And then I'm like, no, I'm in my field outdoor damp clothes. I don't want to get in my bed with those clothes. I don't want to change. And so, uh, you know, I, I was like, I just need maybe sort of a, a string chair, uh, a hammock chair with a back. All little bits of luxury, you know, but now now I know better. Yeah, but definitely essential, especially if it's a long expedition. Mm -hmm. so every little helps. Um, so I want to wrap up with some technical questions. Um, Paul, so you are developing a SCAT odor collection device. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you're creating this device and what it can do? So the idea with this is that when we do find, find sour SCAT, it's going to be in limited supply or potentially. You know, hopefully it will lead to more and more, but initially limited supply. And to concentrate on training the dogs on the sour scat, because as soon as that scat is found, we're going to really push that hard on the dogs and get their nose to understand exactly what it's like. If we keep placing out that limited amount of scat in the forest floor or something to train the dogs, it can compromise the actual smell, partly because... Um, parasites, bacteria, moles start to interact act with the scat and actually uh, destroy it. And each time you plant it out and pick it up, you know, you're affecting it either by transferring some odor onto it from you or the environment. Um, but also it's starting to dry out because of the environment and it's the moisture that we want. So the idea is that we can place the scat in a sealed jar and it has Teflon tubes out of it. It's run by a battery powered positive air pump. And what it will do is allow us to pump air into the jar and pump the smell of the scat out onto gauze, which we present to the dogs instead. So the dogs will receive is the headspace, we call it, the smell, um, without having to take that scat out and keep planting it and messing with it and destroying it. So it's hopefully will give lots of exposure on the scat over time while maintaining the integrity of the limited amount of samples we got until we get to a point where obviously we're finding plenty of scat samples and we don't have to worry about that. So um, I developed that device. It's based on um, prior devices I've developed. Um, and it, it all stems from something called an olfactometer, which is a canine 
research device that Texas Tech University, Dr. Nathan Hall and his team built. And I have one in the lab and it's kind of a very much condensed battery powered, easy packable version of that. So it's a proven concept that we'll take into the jungle and actually use with us or the handlers will depending when the first scat is found and actually continue the training. And that's the reason that I actually built that device and I'll be taking it to Lao with me. That's amazing. How long um, does it take for smell to um, disappear or dissipate from a scat that's not in the device? And how long can the device keep the smell? Well, that's a depends question. And there's lots of those in dog training because the environment, the climatic conditions, the interaction with insects. Um, and when Amy and I was there, Amy set up an experiment where she planted different scats out and beetles came and disposed of it. I think some of it within 12 hours um, and then some longer, but very quickly they start to process this down and pull it into the ground. So it can be a very short amount of time or scat can sit there a long time. You know, it depends what environmental factors are actually interacting with it. Within a sealed jar, then, I mean, it can last a long time. The worry is mold um, starts to grow if there's any mold spores that are on it before you seal it in a jar. Um, and also it starts to ferment, you know, and it can cause issues. And until we actually have some sour and start to put it in the jar and see how long it'll last, that's difficult to say. It, I mean, I hope that the, any mold spore that is introduced uh, can be controlled and that actually it's mold within the lower environment. So it's something that would be part of the scent picture anyway. But these are considerations we have to look at as we start to use the device and actually experiment with it. The scat could be dried some, you know, to help out that process um, and, and start to age it as we go along. So, yeah, there's a lot of depends in there because we don't really know. And the environment is going to act depending on the time of year. You know, I think with time of year we're going, it's a lot of rain is happening and that's going to affect the scat that's been dropped as well if it's getting washed out or or heavy rains on it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a lot of factors for sure. Uh, thank you. And Amy, um, you've been in some amazing places with your dogs. Where are you off to next in your detection dog work? I may go visit colleagues in Alberta, Canada. Um, we mentor their program and, and help them get, get started. And, and their dogs are working now on invasive mussels and uh, feral swine. Um, but mostly by design, apart from Lao, I'm not going on any um, big overseas projects this year um and that's that's by design because my retired dog lily who is um 15 years old and she likes to be around me i like to be around her um she worked until she was about 13 and now has been enjoying an active retirement but you know i won't have all the time in the world left with her and so um, we've we've kind of uh, worked my my work plan that uh, I get to drive most places I go these days, so Lily can come in tow. And um, yeah, so apart from from going back to Laos, that's that's my big exception. I'm gonna stay close to home, stay close to Lily. Yeah, that sounds good, and it's good that she's enjoying a nice retirement. 
Um, and then the last question uh, that we have is, um, when are we going to find our first seller? The big question. <laughs> um, I think that's one where we'd hope to find it soon, but it's there's so many different factors that could happen. It could be luck, uh, it could be scent detection dog, it could be one of the handlers. Um, we're about when do you hope to find the first hour on the two-year mission? Do you think is most likely? I mean, the hope is the last week that I'm there <laughs> in the forest with the dogs. You know, that would be the hope that very early on we prove the capability and I'm there to witness it. But I think, you know, as a dog trainer, um, particularly on a project like this where canines have never been trained to find a sowler uh, or in this environment, and, you know, there's so many challenges, et cetera, that any opportunity to prove that the canines can actually support the mission and locate Sowler Scat and actually push this whole project forward at any point will be a massive um, leap forward. But also, you know, it's like, um, it's just an excitement that I think only dog trainers that actually do this know what it's like to have that first find and just everything's proven and the dogs are doing what they should do and capable. So I'll be happy at any time but it would be nice to be there when it happens. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I second that, Paul. Um, and also, I really, I do love the, the multidisciplinary approach to this. You know, pe people in the field, trackers, dogs. Um, of course, there's the extra challenge, the cell are moving around, right? So, so it's not like a, a, a static thing that, we're looking for and we could grid through the forest and find it because it won't move you know we could be moving the cell lock could be moving but you know tracks and scat will persist at least for for some time in the forest so we have a better chance of, of zeroing in on them um and i do feel like in the um uh probably 40 some different conservation targets i've worked on I feel like there's a bit of a pattern for the the beginner luck, like you sometimes start out start out hot and you think, oh, this is we're gonna find a lot, and then sometimes it's like you find it right at the beginning and then you don't find it again for a while. So I'm I think uh, there's there's a the universe has given us a, a precedent that sometimes early early in the process um, is when you get lucky or when you have a visitor who has not usually been a part of the day in and day out search, a good luck charm comes comes and visits the, the program. So um, if we don't uh, start finding Salah, we'll have to start organizing good luck charms to go visit the teams in the forest. Yeah, definitely. All the good luck charms, all fingers crosses. <laughs> Thank you both Amy and Paul for being a part of this Q&A. Can you both tell us where we can find a little bit more information about what you're doing? And um, if it's like on social media or a website, um, Amy, would you like to share us what information that would be? Sure. Um, so you can find our website at wd4c.org and that's the number four. Um, and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and yeah, we'd love to 
to hear from people and know you're out there uh, crossing your fingers and rooting for us in this endeavor. Yeah, and Paul? Yeah, Instagram is my main source of um, snapshots of what's going on. And then sometimes on my business Facebook, both Chiron K, the number nine. Um, and I, you know, I do post quite regular on those. And obviously when we're in Laos, we'll be posting regular as well. Thank you. And if you go to Paul's right, right now, look through and you'll see Norman and Bertie, the dogs who are, will be going to Laos. So if you want to see what they look like, they're, they're there. They're on social media. Yeah. And I recommend it because they're very cute as well. <laughs> uh, thank you, Amy and Paul. And if anyone's interested in the Salah Foundation, you can go to www.salahfoundation.org to find out more about what we're doing and sign up to our newsletter. Thank you.